Happy new moon creatures. Well, happy day after the new moon creatures, although by pagan counts, the new moon and the full moon always last for three full days, a day before and a day after the peak. And here we are a day after the peak of the new moon. Yesterday was the new moon and yesterday was also a bad ice storm that came over the valley. I was locked in place and unable to actually take the walk. And I recorded a podcast anyway, um, but you know, and I posted it even. Some of y'all might have seen that blip up there. I just didn't feel right about it. Something about sitting still while I talked about these things just didn't feel right. I didn't like the things I'd said. I, I was like, well, you know what? It's more important to show up in the way that I want to than to always be on time. <laughs> I learned that one from the French. <laughs> so today, here we are, our last walk. I am going through uh, a forest in our city center as it drizzles just a bit. The ice is just melting. I mean, all the walkways are just rivers of ice right now. I will not dare trot on any of them, um, but I'm moving between the trees and tromping on the grass. You might hear ice and snow crunching underneath me. Winter is new for me. You know, coming from the south, this time, this period of great dormancy forces us to rest, it forces us to stop. Still new for me, still getting used to it. But ah, I like it, you know? Even with the ice storms, even with the inconveniences, even with the, you know, I mean, it was kind of risky getting out of the house today and driving around. Um, but I just went by at a crawl, you know, everything slows down in winter. I think having the seasons be a part of my life, and I know I've talked about this before on the podcast, but having the seasons be a part of my life has been really instrumental in my mental and emotional health. I've internalized the seasons. The seasons manage um, my rises and falls, my relationships, my goals, the way that I just look at my life, you know? And it's not like I'm always turning with exactly with the seasons, but everything has seasons. Everything has its springtime. Everything has its summer, its height of activity, right? Going from that period of novelty and exploration to finding the things that work and really going for it. And then everything has autumn when we harvest all of this energy, when we can look back and be appreciative. Winter. Winter is a time of letting go. I think about all the little seeds just below the surface of the ground right now. Cold stratifying them, making them rigid against their shells. So that way, when the cues come, when the sunlight starts to increase, when it gets a little bit warmer, it gets a little bit wetter, all the signs seem right. The thing that will become the living plant will shuffle off that hardened shell that protected it through the winter, that shell releasing and becoming a part of the earth, creating soil. It's beautiful. <laughs> this is that moment though, that deep cold where whatever was living before, whatever was churning and bumping and doing all the living stuff has to just, has to stop, it has to let go if the cycle's going to repeat itself in the spring. I guess today I'm going to be talking a little bit about letting go. I'm also going to be talking about beliefs. I've got a few things I want to talk about. I'm, I'm going to be honest, I didn't, I didn't write this one out. Um, I had a plan for about uh, almost all of the episodes from the very inception of this podcast. I had a, not like an outline of everything, but I had like the headlines of what I wanted to talk about each month and the order I wanted to do it. And there were a few gaps that got filled in along the way. But for the most part, I had a pretty clear vision, except for this episode. <laughs> this one was always blank. I didn't know. I didn't know what I'd want to talk about when I got here, when we got here to the end, our last walk together. 
I'm so glad I'm re-recording. It feels really good to walk and talk about this instead of standing still under an awning while the world froze around me. That was not the vibe. That was the incorrect vibe. This last like week and a half, I did like a speed run challenge listening to my entire podcast. <laughs> this is not bingeable content. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, please. <laughs> if you have just binged through all of my podcasts, please, relax. Just take, <laughs> take some time. <laughs> Go, come back around a little bit more slowly because it's a lot of information and a lot of it's really heavy. Like really poking at the dark and prickly parts of the mind. But I was listening to myself. I listened to myself rise and fall with the seasons. You know, I could feel my summertime energy coming off of me there in those middle episodes. With autumn came a hard dip for me, energetically and circumstantially. Things got tough, and I could hear that too. <laughs> But I wanted to just give everything a listen to like synthesize what I've been talking about, what this journey has been about. Um, at the very first episode, you know, I said, I hope, I hope people can draw something from it. But more than anything, I'm doing this for me. I'm doing this to synthesize my own understanding. You know, I've shared so much information. Um, you know, we're looking at internal family systems therapy. We're looking at the structural dissociation of the personality. We're looking at developmental neuroscience. We're looking at feedback loops that happens in systems of communities and societies. Like, oh my gosh, we are talking about so much knowledge. But the point of knowledge is not to just hold it like inert material in your brain. You're not trying to hold a dead library of books in your brain. The point of knowledge, and I try to get this through to my students, is to synthesize from it understanding. To allow the things that we have learned become deep parts of us. Our awareness to shape our worldview, the way that we look at things. When I, when I see people now, when I talk to people, you know, I like, I look for their shadow <laughs> or I'll see signs of it. I'm like, Ooh, somebody's shadows outside, <laughs> you know, like, Ooh, they are not treating themselves well. They're not treating me well. Like somebody needs to tuck their shadow back inside. Somebody needs to hold and embrace it. I'm like, Oh, there's a, there's a part, you know, there's an emotional part cropping up. I become more aware, I've, I'm more accepting of this notion of uh, letting go of the monomind myth that we just have this one consciousness. And instead of having a collection of sub-personalities, sub-consciousnesses, sub-parts, you know, our parts, our emotional parts. I think about, it changes the way that I look at people who are, you know, struggling, but still like hitting the bell. It's like, okay, like, who knows how many of their resources they don't have access to because of uh, trauma because of, um, you know, things that have just been taken by the shadow haven't had to be given to the shadow. And I think about their apparently normal part. I think about that part of them that's like pushing forward with a little leg and an arm tied behind their back and the weight of the world on their shoulders and like, damn, how strong they are. I think about my friends who are in different ages and the different phases of neural development that they're in and like where are they in their pain management how are they managing their pain you know my younger friends who are just going through the keyhole i think some of my youngest friends are in their late 20s you know i'm just like damn all right you know <laughs> here it is welcome to the precipice versus i meet my friends who are in their late 50s and you know i watch some of them really struggle with their pain i watch some people not manage it very well and then mixed up inside of all of that are my friends who are like figuring it out way younger than I ever did. And I'm so excited for them. <laughs> and so all of this knowledge that I walk around with, it's like a lens I've been looking through, you know, I'm not just like holding it in my brain, but I'm, I'm looking at the world through this lens. I'm trying to understand people through this lens. 
And it's kind of like how when you learn a new word, um, then you just like hear it everywhere, right? Well, the word was always there. It was always getting used with some amount of frequency, but now you're aware of the pattern. You're noticing it more. Same thing happens with knowledge. If we walk with it, you know, if we actually use it as a lens. You know, my math students like come in glassy eyed, and, you know, everything I say goes kind of for the most part in one ear and out the other. Always a few exceptions, always a few stellar students. Some very special ones have come through my classroom. But for the most part, they're, they're just here to hear the thing, to do the thing, and then they're there to leave. And I try to uh, impress on them, like, if you actually take these tools out into the world, what you're going to do is you're going to find that these mathematical models describe phenomenon of life, like, all over the place. It's everywhere. It's incredible. And that feels really good. When we have these patterns and we look through them and we see them in the world, we have to be a little careful because that's where confirmation bias can happen, right? We're wanting to find something. We want to see or to find something. We want to have these views validated. Well, okay, so when we're coming from this place of we have this knowledge, okay, let's say we can walk around with it and apply it to the world. Well, what we're really doing is we're building beliefs. You know, we spend all this time talking scientific knowledge. And really, at the end of the day, what matters most is what we believe, what we hold to be true. And those are things that are backed by, um, backed by experience and sometimes just by pure faith. So, hmm, how do we want to get here? Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll circle into this and spiral in. Um, at one point when we were doing the visitation, I talked to you guys about the way that the, your shadow can appear to you, right? And how that can change. Well, so over this year, my relationship with my shadow has changed. My shadow themselves has, have changed. The representation of my shadow has changed. I, I healed some pretty big stuff over the course of this year. Uh, the sunny season was good to me. And I was able to let go of, of some things that had shackled me. And so the representation of my shadow that I had been dealing with just like no longer applied. They, they could let go. And so I, I was left one new moon going, I, who, who am I meeting? <laughs> you know, like, I don't like what a wonderful and powerful healing experience I've had. I'm so happy for it. I don't want to put them back into the role that they'd been in this extreme role of, of being a representative for an egg, you know, for my exiled self. Like I I'm overjoyed by the energy that comes pouring out of this part of me now that I have that resource back. Like that's incredible. But like, you know, I sit down at the new moon, I light my candles, I get out all my special racks. <laughs> I'm like, okay, but like knock, knock who's home. And something kind of interesting happened. A little Hecate formed. <laughs> I haven't been engaging with my shadow as a singular entity uh, for the last several months. It's been a trio. Every new moon, we walk together all lunar month, and every new moon I take time to process, to kind of pluck the fruit, have an autumn <laughs> of gratitude and, and, and uh, harvest uh, the wisdom of the lunar month from the old trio and allow a new trio to rise. It's been very interesting. And in this healing journey, in this process of this transformation of interacting with my shadow, um, it's allowed for me to see some more complex dynamics between my emotions. And I, I want to talk about a certain trio of emotions um, that, you know, that I've been working on, that I've been processing through some of the awarenesses that I've had in this, just to kind of show you what, I don't know, what some of this shadow work looks like for me, what some of this journey looks like. Maybe it can help put some things in perspective for you. And I want to talk about the beliefs that underlie um, each, of these, each of these feelings. I want to talk about shame. I want to talk about anger. And I want to talk about grief. Those are the three. Before we dive into them, I want to talk about belief for a second. And the role that that plays in the creation of exiles. So if something happens, if something bad happens, Something that your thalamus can't process and it has to be broken into pieces or quarantined away in some part of your brain. Um, so that way, you know, maybe like you can just get through the day right now and maybe come back around and process it later. Uh, but for right now, that just has to go. Okay. 
Well, what we're doing is we're creating an exile. There is, um, how do I say this? At the heart of every exile, the thing that keeps them configured the way that they have to be, folding them inside out in order to form a protective shell around whatever painful experience you are unable to process at that moment. At the core of them is some negative belief about the self. Something that twists like a dagger inside of you anytime you think that maybe it's true. Let's say you had a teacher humiliate you in school and you, that experience was too much to bear, you know, in front of your classmates, in front of your peers. And so you partition the memory off and you wrap it in the belief that I'm stupid. Now, that exile is going to use that belief like a protective barrier. It's the crunchy, like the icy shell. <laughs> it's the icy shell around the painful experience. I'm stupid. Something that we hurt about ourselves. Something that if, if we see things that make it true, oh, it hurts us even more. And so whenever that, in, let's say, boom, you grow up, you're an adult now, but you still have this exiled part, you still have this place of pain and this negative self-belief wrapped up uh, with it. Now that negative self-belief is a deterrent. It's to keep you from accessing this place. You're not gonna confront the belief because it scares you too much. And yo, we protect our identities um, too much. <laughs> we, protecting your identity is something that you will do like a wild animal. Most violent assaults have somewhere woven into it a threat to a person's identity. Um, we are mad when it comes to protecting this part of who we are, who, who we think we are, right? And this is the ego at work um, and it's most negative. Um, the ego can be positive, just putting that out there. <laughs> we can have positive ego, um, but in its most negative, um, we can see that threats to it give rise to um, sometimes uncontrollable violence. So, you know, like I'm not going to just come running at this belief, uh, this negative self-belief that's so terrifying. And then if something happens, like let's say you make a mistake during a presentation at work. Oh, shit. Hits you right in that negative self-belief. Ooh, reinforces the boundaries of that exile. You know, and like, and all the cascading shit that comes with that. Furthermore, because you're carrying this belief, okay, so whenever the exile gets activated, that belief gets activated too. So if something stressful happens, you may just find the waters rise, and all of a sudden you're like, I'm just, I'm an idiot. I'm just too stupid to do these things. You know, like all of a sudden, out of nowhere, these beliefs emerge. Um, they are, then, they're not true. You know, it's not a true thing. It's a belief. But if 2020 taught me anything, it's that beliefs don't have to be true to be powerful. And so these are powerful beliefs. These negative self-beliefs are powerful ways to keep your conscious mind from accessing restricted parts of your memory, feelings, and experiences. It, the brain is just doing what works, okay? It's just doing its job. But it also creates a lens that you're looking through um, and seeing the world, you know, in the same way that we can take all this wonderful knowledge and use it as a lens, maybe a bit of a clearer lens when we're building off of knowledge. When we come from the place of our experiences and our beliefs, we're still looking through a lens, but gosh, it can be distorted and it can really be looking for certain kinds of things. It wants to confirm itself. You know, belief doesn't operate in the mind like scientific fact does. Scientific fact is just like, it's just there, <laughs> you know, there's no, there's no ambiguity, you know, a, a thing observable facts are, are wonderfully static. It's one of the reasons why we're building a revolution on top of them. You know, they're stable ground. Um, observable facts, they're great. Belief, ooh, belief is like a living ecosystem. You know, if things are reinforced, they strengthen. If they are not reinforced, they wither. Uh, beliefs can come and go and change and transform. Uh, people try to hold them as rigid um, and having that stability but they simply don't operate that way. Um, so, but, but they want to live, you know? If they're part of a living ecosystem, they hear running, operating like programming on a living computer, and they borrow from us our fear of death. You know, like 
they want to thrive. And so they want to look for a belief operating inside of your neural network wants to find evidence that it's true. It wants to strengthen itself at every opportunity. And so you're going to walk through life looking for ways, not just looking for proof that you're dumb to reinforce that belief, to keep your exile quarantined away from your consciousness, but you're also not going to see evidence that counters it. Evidence that suggests actually you're really clever, you know, actually you have a pretty special mind, you know, you have incredible talents that that middle school teacher just didn't see, you know. But we won't see that. And, and it's not that you won't have smart moments that happen. You will. But if you don't identify as being smart, or if you have an identity that precludes that from your character, from who, how you think of yourself, right? I don't have to believe I'm smart to feel my smartness, but if I believe that I'm dumb, my brain will have a harder time accessing memories in which I look smart, in which I feel smart. It, it mutes our memory access. So if you, you know, uh, if you believe that you're a powerless person, you are more likely to look at the world through a lens in which people have more power than you. You will notice times and hold on to times in which your power is taken from you. Um, and you will see less the opportunities for empowering yourself or even the moments of empowerment that do happen will be harder for your mind to access as memories. Wow, what a distorted lens to look through. You know, what a tricky place to look through our life. And this is one of the reasons why we scaffold onto knowledge. You know, we want to hold on to something that feels more secure. We want to, we want something that's going to be consistent for our bedrock. Okay, so these beliefs, you know, they shape, they shape how you, how you show up in the world. If, if you're going in the world and you, and you have this childhood trauma and you think that you're dumb, it's going to change how you show up in the world. It's going to change the kind of opportunities you put in front of yourself, the kind of challenges you're willing to face. It changes everything. We'll talk about how I think you can hack this system <laughs> towards the end. But let's, let's look at these three emotions, though. I want to come to these three emotions and think about the, the beliefs that sit at the core of them. Okay, all right, let's start with shame. This is where it began for me, this journey. is like, I, I have made a pact of nonviolence with myself. I am on my team. I am not always a great teammate. Look, I'm not always a great teammate. I kind of rely on other people in the group to do the assignment. I'm not, I, you know, you don't have to be perfect. But here's the thing is I'm on my team. I am not here to hurt myself. It's not that I don't. But once I become aware of the fact that I am, I immediately stop whatever is going on. You know, if I'm doing something that hurts me and I see it, I recoil from that because I don't want to hurt myself. You know, uh, people who have abuse histories often internalize the abuse. You know, you like, <laughs> you hit yourself so they don't have to hit you anymore. Um, and, and it feels like it's done. Your neural network is expecting certain kinds of interactions and behaviors. And those can echo like it can echo for decades inside of your neural network for the rest of your life, potentially. Um, even after maybe the perpetrators are dead, like these things can ring inside of us. And so somewhere along my journey, I realized the ways that I was harming myself internally, that I was causing myself so much pain. And I was like, I'm done. No more. I, I don't, I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know how I'm going to execute it, but I am making a vow of nonviolence towards myself. Okay, so in processing some pretty old big shame, I was like, I, I don't want to carry this shame anymore. I don't want to walk with this belief, this negative self-belief, that there is something fundamentally wrong with me, that there is something fundamentally unwantable, unlovable, that I am damaged, that I am broken. Like that was the belief that I was walking with. This dagger I just stuck in my own heart. But all this reading and all this learning and talking to you guys about it reminds me that like, no, yo, that is, that is just a backward bend of a threatened moment that a child experienced. You know, I was a little kid once and I was threatened by my caregivers, by the people who were supposed to give me security. And so un my sweet little dome, my sweet little gray matter wasn't developed enough to properly attribute the source of my suffering to my caregivers. I can't. Kids' brains don't do that, remember? 
you know, they can only, they can't see their caregivers as a threat because even to have a bad caregiver, it's adaptive, it's evolutionary. Even to have a bad caregiver is better than no caregiver as far as your chances of survival go. You know, you can have bad caregivers and I survived, I survived, I'm here, you know? So like the system works, <laughs> like that's what validates it. But so I'm, I recognize that that experience of shame that I'm having, okay, that was when I was little, I had to attribute where the pain was coming from to something. I had to put it on something and being a little kid, it's all about me, you know? And so that threat, that dagger, boom, straight into my heart. And now here in my forties, I pull it out. I'm like, okay, all right, you know what? I'm not fundamentally unlovable. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with me. I'm not broken. I'm different. I'm wounded. I've, I have some bad patterns to unlearn. You know, like I've got, I've got improvement I can do. But I'm okay. I'm fine. I'm, you know, I'm good enough. Good enough for punk rock. <laughs> but so then I've got this dagger, right? And so that, like, let's just, like, recognize for a second that that journey of being able to pull the shame dagger from my heart was not a quick one. That was not a quick one. That was a slow build. But all of a sudden I had this dagger that I'd pulled from my heart and I was like, well, okay, I'm divesting myself of this negative belief. I'm freeing the part of me. I'm freeing the part of me that had to hold that belief, had to carry that horrible, painful belief in order to quarantine certain experiences I had from my consciousness. No, I'm ready. I'm ready to face them. I'm ready to let go of this belief. I'm ready to continue this commitment of nonviolence to myself and, and free myself of old and ancient pains. Okay, great. So I have this dagger. I pulled it from my heart. <laughs> and it's like, well, what do I do with it now? And all the dagger wants to do is to sink itself into the actual source of my pain. My shame became anger in the alchemy of the heart. And that anger, that dagger, wanted to find its source. Oh, shame washed away and I found myself face to face with rage. Furious at the ones who'd hurt me. And I've been conditioned to think that, <laughs> that my anger is bad, but Fuck you, motherfuckers. I just divested myself of shame. I don't think that my anger is a problem anymore. No, my anger is a tool. It is a messenger. It tells me something. My anger tells me when a boundary has been crossed. Maybe it was a boundary I didn't even know existed. Yeah? So I walked with this rage, observed it, hung out with it. And I was like, ah, you know what? Like, I get <laughs> the very powerful feeling that can come from wanting to just like rip someone a new one because they've hurt me because they did something painful to me. I want to do something painful back to them. And like, yeah, I come from the South. I come from an honor culture. We, we are an eye for an eye kind of people. And I, I'm divesting things from my parent culture, you know, like <laughs> I don't agree with every, every part of it, but gosh, if that isn't a reflex somewhere inside of me. But I'm not, I'm not that person anymore. I'm not, I don't know, winter has found me. <laughs> I live in a place that's cooled my temper now. I've opened myself to more compassionate, to compassionate perspectives of other people. I'm, I don't want to stab anybody else in the heart. I don't want to stab me in the heart. I don't want to stab anybody else in the heart. I want their hearts to be pain free. <laughs> And so I take this quivering dagger of rage that's just like seeking the ones that have hurt me. And I go, okay, well, but we're not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. That's not who I am. I don't want to hurt anyone. Everyone has enough pain. So what do I do with this dagger of anger? And it rose in my hand like a wall. And that's when I realized the real tool that anger can be is that anger builds the boundaries. You know, if it's a messenger for when it's been crossed, it also can be a conduit for how they become created. And when those boundaries raise, 
the anger eases. When I understand for myself where the walls are and then defend them. Oh, that's the really, that's the skill, right? That's the hard part is like, not just letting the walls fall down the second somebody comes around. You know, I mean, all like, I'm all about my boundaries until like somebody actually challenges them and be like, oh, I'm gonna roll over and be passive. You know, so like, that's part of the journey still. We're working on that one. But I see that that's the practice. I have to honor my anger by feeling it, understanding it's a messenger, searching for the boundary that's been crossed, using that anger to build said boundary. And then it is my covenant, my covenant of nonviolence to myself, non-self-harm that says, okay, now my job is to guard this boundary. That boundary could move. It could change. It could exist for a time and then relax later. You know, none of this. It's a living system. It's a living system. But while it's there and while I'm seeing it, like that's the thing to pay attention to. Don't think about, I'm not thinking about how it might be one day. I'm seeing how it is now and I'm accepting that it could change. And so I just have to stay attentive. You know, I can't just set something in place and then ignore it. Like I have to like a garden you know you have to actually engage with it you actually have to watch it so so my anger eases my walls are raised and again in the cauldron of the heart the anger shame turned to anger and anger turned to grief because when walls go up you get a clearer picture of what's you and what's not you you know, there's this side of the wall and there's that side of the wall. And that means something is lost. Things can be swept away on the other side of the wall. And be disconnected from them in ways that can be really painful, really sad. And grief. Grief is a messenger too. It's a messenger of loss. We feel grief so that we, we can acknowledge those losses. I'm not trying to cling to the things that found themselves on the other side of my boundaries and the other side of my walls. Grief is letting go. You know, inside of my anger, well, inside of my shame was that belief that there was something wrong with me, right? That's what shame is. Inside of my anger is the belief. <laughs> I don't know, in retribution. <laughs> that other people are, should be held responsible for my feelings and my boundaries. You know, I'll, say, I'll definitely say that's a negative self-belief that gets woven in with anger deep in there. Grief has a negative self-belief too. that was the one that was kind of the hardest to unravel. It was the hardest to see. I'm just like processing. I'm just trying to like let go of, you know, the me I thought I would be and the life I thought I would have and the, the circumstances and situations I thought were ahead of me. And suddenly it was just, boom. It all got swept away. I suffered a loss that was, you know, 40 years in the making. It was a big one. It took the ground out from underneath me. Some days I was just a lump. Was, I called it lumping. <laughs> I would just find a place in my house and I would bury myself under all of the fuzziest blankets. Um, and I'd just cry. <laughs> I would just cry. My family would pat my head and give me hot drinks and still hang out and still laugh and talk and stuff. And I would, But I was just a lump. My mental level was zero. You know, I am a piece of furniture. <laughs> Please occasionally pat me and dust me off. So I wasn't in a place. I just didn't have, I didn't have the mental level to like dive into like, what is the negative belief? I just had to experience the grief. I had to feel the letting go and watch it all wash away. Watch my shame and my anger go with it. I just felt so lonely and so sad. But inside of that loneliness is the negative self-belief that I'm alone. 
now that we are in some way truly separated, that anything can actually be lost to me. I know that when we look at internal family systems therapy and we talk about our parts, parts don't die. <laughs> They're never gone. They may go dormant. You know, they may transform. We may not see them anymore in the way that we knew them, but they're always with us. They always travel with us. It's no different with people. It's no different with situations. You know, we live in a multiverse. Just because I can't see the other timelines doesn't mean they're not there. Just because a person is beyond my ability to contact them or to, you know, build meaningful relationships, it doesn't mean that we're not connected. The earth and the sun will provide for them the same way it does for me. We're bound through this world, this experience, and this moment. You know, and that feeling of connection, that big feeling of connection is what we call love. So shame gave way to anger, which gave way to grief, which gave way to love. And I'm finding myself feeling stronger haven't lumped in a while <laughs> here in the deep of winter on the long dark nights it's a good time to go searching for your light <laughs> it's really great when you can find it So these beliefs are like linchpins inside of us. And when we can confront them and when we can actually allow ourselves to do the courageous work of looking at our negative beliefs and then not like shitting on ourselves for having negative self-beliefs, but being like, okay, well, why do I believe that? You know, or, or even better than the why, because the why can be a spirally guy. Um, if you don't feel really rooted, I may not recommend that. But like, just here's a question. If you can identify a negative self-belief, what evidence do you have to the contrary? When I work with students who have high math anxiety, negative self-talk is one of the earliest signs of math anxiety. And so when I'm working with a student, if they're like, I'm dumb, I'm not gonna be like, no, you're not, you're not dumb. Because all that's telling them is that they can't open up to me, that they can't share what's going on inside of them. I'm arguing with their self-perception and they're gonna protect their identity. They're gonna clam up. They're not gonna say anything, you know? Um, they're not gonna get violent because I'm an authority figure. But what we do is when I hear that, I'll be like, okay, cool. That there's one of your, there's one of your, uh, you know, there's negative self-talk right there. There's one of your uh, beliefs that's causing, you know, that's part of the inhibition response that causes uh, math anxiety. And so we write it down on a card. I'm like, okay, cool. Heard your brain. Heard your brain. You want to bring up this point right now. So we'll write that down. And then we flip it over. And on the back end, and this is something they carry with them, we slowly accumulate evidence to the contrary. It's a belief just because you believe it, even if you've had a preponderance of evidence to support it, doesn't make it true. Even if you walk through life with these distorted lenses of your negative self-belief and big trauma, you know, those beliefs being active in an unseen part of your mind that can still like make stuff happen in your life, right? You may have actually built a, a preponderance of evidence to support these negative self-beliefs, you know, like uh, feeling, you know, feel, being a relinquished kid, feeling unwanted is a negative self-belief that has been a heavy one for me. And I found myself constantly in relationships with unstable and emotionally unavailable people. I found myself in situations that I had to bolt and run from all the time and then being like, why does everybody leave me? You know, like we can create these circumstances to reinforce this belief. We can see them through a distorted lens to ensure that whatever is actually happening conforms to meet, to, to reinforce those beliefs too. So your amygdala could be like, yo, absentia, I have uh, so much personal evidence from my life, lived experience, and I'm sorry, I'm the amygdala. You can't tell me, you know? You can't tell me, you have to show me. I have to learn through experience. And so this is why what, what evidence do you have to the contrary? You know? In the courtroom of your mind. You know, where's your defense attorney? And who's the judge? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Leave room for your wise mind to come in and arbitrate. But all we usually do is hear the negative words. All we usually do is hear the negative self-talk. 
Okay. So these beliefs, they shape us. They shape the way we interact with the world. They shape the choices we make. They're wanting to be reinforced. And we can divest ourselves of these negative beliefs. That is absolutely possible. This is not a safe hill to come down. Okay, hold on. I'm going to walk a different way. Um, we can divest ourselves of these beliefs. That's absolutely possible. We can also... Okay, here's the, ha the belief hacking that I was talking about earlier. I think that we can also transform our belief system, this ecosystem inside of us. Um, so being a secular scientific, like, oh, you know, I'm an empiricist. I'm, I'm here for reality. I am here for reality. I don't want the bullshit. Um, but I kind of threw out the baby with the bathwater. I chucked faith and belief um, with it. And I was like, I only need scientific fact. And that is not true. <laughs> that is proven to not be true. I lost a really important part of me. When I'm only operating from the empirical, when I'm only operating from a place of knowledge, what knowledge doesn't do very well is leaps of faith. You know, like knowledge builds upon each other, but in careful, steady steps. There's no gaps. We're trying to, that's exactly the point of it. We're trying to not have these gaps. We're trying to build something really stable and solid. But if you're going to challenge inner beliefs, if you're going to challenge negative beliefs about the self, you're going to have to take a leap of faith. You're going to have to, you know, like for me to walk with this, you know, this shameful belief that there's something fundamentally wrong with me. I, I had to just take the leap and go, you know what? I actually, I don't have maybe a lot of evidence to the contrary. Or if I do, I'm having trouble remember, remembering it because I don't identify um, in that way. And so my memory systems are being inhibited. But I just have to choose and choose every day to just believe there's nothing wrong with me. I'm okay. You know, maybe I'm different. You know, human diversity is a thing. But there's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm not broken. And, and that was just, you just a leap of faith. I just had to believe it, even without evidence. The scientific rational mind does not do that well. We need belief. We need belief, not only to be able to take these leaps of faith, but also to cultivate a kind of existence that we want to live inside of, you know? So, okay, beliefs, beliefs don't have to be true to be, be powerful, right? So I, <laughs> I started doing this thing of thinking about belief. Beliefs are a lens that we look at the world through. And for me now, the beliefs that I carry, it's more important to me um, how they shape my perspective of the world and how they shape my perspective of myself, what kind of person they turn me into, than it is whether they're true or not. Um, when it comes to, you know, truth, like, okay, lowercase t truth, I, I have the sciences and mathematics back me up. You know, capital T truth is one of those things that we can talk about in our philosophy classes, you know, like that's a place of eternal debate. But like, when it comes to these beliefs, I just really don't care. So, okay, well, this is the one I like to share with people. Because, um, like, death is scary, you know, and I, I haven't transcended, you know, my, my own mortal fears yet. I'm still working, still working on that one. Give, give me a couple more months. <laughs> um, and so, sometimes I'm here at 41. I'm faced with my mortality. And I have to think about, you know, I need something to think about. I don't like thinking that I'm just done and that's it and then... I don't know, that this, this scientific, that empirical perspective doesn't really give me much. And so I really like to think, this is just this is what I like to think. I like to think, uh, believe in nonlinear reincarnation. I like to think that I'm going to die um, and then, that, you know, whatever transmutes, whatever energy pushes, will go and then be eventually every living thing ever. So um, I could go from here to, you know... Uh, 13th century German peasant girl to 30,000th century space explorer to, and when I get really stressed out, I always like to be like, I hope my next lifetime is 700,000 years of being grass. That's all I want. <laughs> I just want to be grass for a while and feel my little roots and have the sunshine on me. That's it. I'm done. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm really, I'm really looking forward to some grass eras, you know? <laughs> and so, when I walk around and I look at the world through this lens, it changes the way that I see people. It changes the way that I interact with situations. If stuff happens and I don't understand what's going on or why a person is acting a certain way, instead of just like obsessing and just like spinning my wheels about it all the time, I go, you know what, I'll, I'll know one day. I'll know one day. I'll find out. 
you know, I can let go of that. If I'm engaging with strangers, I'm more patient. <laughs> you know, if somebody seems like they're having a bad day. I'm like, whew, okay, that one's going to be a doozy. You know, it'd be really helpful if somebody being a little kind. It just, when I look at the world through this lens, I like myself better. I like the person that I am. I like how it makes me. You know, and I know it's a belief. And so it's not something I'm going to bring to the table if we're debating, you know, real, like the, you know, I don't know, like the real material needs of another living person. Like if we, I don't know, if we were at a city council meeting talking about aid for the houseless here in town, like I'm not going to bring up like, well, in the, in, from the nonlinear reincarnation perspective, like I'm not going to bring my beliefs to that table. That's a table for empiricism, for facts, you know. But there are other tables that that belief is absolutely appropriate to bring to. And, and moments, all the moments in between, just walking around, looking at all these trees, thinking about them all looking at me. So I'm distinct, but I'm connected, you know? And shadow work, the journey is always a solo journey, you know? The things that are gonna unfold in your mind, the experiences that you're going to have, uh, you can even share them with people, but it's never going to make sense to them in the way that it makes sense to you, you know? It's cool to share these things. It's cool to hear other people's experiences and what it looks like, but it won't have meaning for the people around you because it's a personal journey. It's a personal spiritual journey. But I would be lying if I tried to say, I did this all on my own. I don't need nobody. And like, that's not how this went at all. All those negative beliefs I held about myself created a really, I created a really isolated life. I didn't have it in me to connect to others because I wasn't connected to myself. You know, I didn't have it. <laughs> all those, all those deep places that people create connections between each other from, mine was packed like a hoarder's hallway of trauma and repressed memories and unprocessed feelings and you know, like I couldn't, I couldn't open those doors and connect to anybody. It was a mess. And then by some stupid sort of luck, I don't, and at least a hand, handful of will, I don't know exactly how it happened. I can't trace it back. But at some point I opened up a little bit more. I found somebody I could trust. I could talk to about what I was feeling. I could be open in that way. And that created a connection between me and someone else. Not a super deep connection right away, but like a real connection. And that strengthened my inner connections. I started becoming more aware of the things going on with me. I started being able to do, I started being able to do shadow work. I didn't even know that that's what it was for a long time. I was just doing stuff, you know, following my intuition and it guided me. And so, oh, okay. All right. Well, I'm starting to understand things. I'm freeing up energy. I'm getting back a little bit of my resources. All of a sudden that internal energy pours outward and I'm able to make wider and deeper connections. And there's this feedback loop that happens between these two spaces. So yeah, like the journey was all me. Nobody could do that part for me, but I wasn't doing it alone. And this last year has had some really incredible highs and some really terrible lows. I don't think that I could have gotten through it I don't think I'd be where I am right now in the aftermath of it were it not for my family and my coven, my people, my close friends, this support system I've built around me that I believe I'm worthy of, that I want to honor the trust and connections that we've created. I want to be part of their positive feedback. When I was in my darkest days, so isolated and alone, I didn't have the stability and consistency in my life to be able to do any of this depth work, you know? Like, and, and I think that it was kind of by unconscious design. Like, if I don't have roots, if I'm not anchored, I can't be going into anything chaotic. Like, I was, woof, control. I needed a lot of control because I felt so out of control inside of me. But now it's different. Now I've got these stable shores of home and family. It gives me somewhere to dive from and it gives me somewhere to return to. 
as I go deeper into my inner journey, I go wider into my outer journey. I don't think these things are separate anymore. I used to think it was directional, you know, you were headed in or you were headed out. But I don't think things separate so cleanly. <laughs> I've never been very good at goodbyes. I usually don't make them. I usually just leave. <laughs> Old fashioned, I would have just cut the recording right now. <laughs> that would be the end. Um, but I'm learning to let go with a little bit more grace. <laughs> Thank you so much for walking with me these last 13 lunar months. Thank you for taking this journey, not just for me, but for yourself. When we start this process, it's so scary. It's so scary. It challenges so many things. There's so much courage that it demands of us. I hope that, that you find what I've found, which is incredible resources, powerful allies, and just like a, a brilliant light that's inside of us. I feel it in me. I feel it in you too. There's a small handful of you who've been taking these walks with me in real time. It's been very special to have you here. And though we're not going to walk together anymore, I hope you can feel me at the edge of your new moon for months to come. I know I'll feel you at mine. My blessings to the light bringer. <laughs>